This podcast is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar cell and module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar is proud to be part of America's booming solar industry. The company's solar manufacturing facility supports 400 workers, directly contributing to the country's burgeoning clean energy economy. That's not the only benefit of being located in the U.S., though. Mission Solar's Texas-based headquarters make it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. With a state-of-the-art R&D lab, Mission Solar pushes cutting-edge technology to the consumer after passing it through the highest reliability testing the solar industry has to offer. You can find out more about Mission's cells and modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, the political left is in the midst of a civil war over how to tackle climate change. In just three weeks, Washington state voters have the chance to pass the most ambitious carbon tax ever proposed in this country. But there's one problem. Virtually every major green group is against it or afraid to support it. So what is going on? David Roberts of Vox is with us to explain. Then the hacked emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign. They also show why tensions run high on the national level between the environmental left and centrists like Clinton. And finally, we'll get away from disagreements and turn to a landmark agreement from last weekend, a global treaty to slash HFCs. It's another win for diplomacy and the Obama administration, but we can't resist bringing politics back into it. Will a Republican Senate fail to ratify the treaty? In our nation's capital, it's Catherine Hamilton. Hey, Catherine, how are you? Great. Thanks. Uh, we had a great time in Austin last week, so thanks for everybody who turned out. Indeed. And despite the technical problems with the recording from the AV crew, it was a fantastic discussion. And in New York City, it's Jigger Shaw. Hello, Jigger. Hey, Stephen. How you doing? Excellent. On the phone with us from his hotel room in California is David Roberts, a writer and all-around climate and energy scholar at Vox.com. He's here to talk to us about a really fascinating, frustrating story. I don't know. You can decide which it is that he wrote about infighting over a carbon tax in Washington state. David, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. So if you haven't read the story, uh, listeners, do it as soon as you finish the podcast. It's at Vox. You can find it under David's byline. It's called The Left Versus a Carbon Tax, and it'll be linked in the show notes, too. So here's a really condensed version, and then I'm going to get to David to fill in the detail. Washington state is considering a pretty ambitious carbon tax on the ballot next month. The initiative is called uh, I-732, so that's what you may hear us referring to. It's uh, a revenue-neutral carbon tax. It cuts manufacturing and sales taxes, and it increases from 15 bucks per ton in 2017 to $25 per ton in 2018, and then goes up every year by 3.5% a year. So on paper, this is like a dream. It makes the tax system more progressive by cutting sales taxes and disproportionately that the, the sales taxes that disproportionately impact low-income residents. It does set a meaningful carbon price that steadily rises, what many progressives have called for, and it appeals to a wider range of people across the political spectrum in theory, except it doesn't. It doesn't have the broad support on the right, as hoped, and it has a ton of opposition on the left to some a baffling, a baffling amount of opposition. And David's going to help us understand why that opposition and drama exists. This internal, this internal opposition is what we want to tease out. But first, let me ask you for a bit of history, David. How did we get to a point where there is a big carbon tax on the ballot, and it didn't come from the traditional coalition of green groups in the state? Well, the the idea for a tax shift has been uh, bouncing around for a long time, as you know. And in Washington, a uh, economics PhD student uh, named Yoram Bauman uh, had uh, sort of fixated on this idea as a good idea. He considered trying to get it on the ballot in 2014. It didn't work out, but then he got uh, some funders, some allies, and they started a concerted campaign, and this all took place more or less uh, orthogonal to uh, the environmental movement. It was it was uh, uh, purely Bauman driving this. And all along, the environmental groups were saying to him, this approach is not going to work for us. Please, y y you know, come 
and let's work out a compromise measure. Please don't go forward with this. But uh, he was unconvinced by their arguments and, and uh, you know, in their telling was uh, um, disdainful of their, of their arguments and their, and their sort of coalitional needs. And uh, so he has, you know, at the, at the last minute, they came to him and more or less begged, said, drop this. The polling shows it's going to lose. Together, we can come up with a compromise measure. We can get big funders behind it. We can get the whole left coalition behind it. Uh, please don't go through with this. And then uh, Yoram went back to his board, the board uh, of uh, Carbon Wa, which is the, the Carbon Washington, the group that he uh, that he founded, and they elected to uh, go forward anyway. So, in addition to the sort of ideological and substantive. Uh, uh, disputes here, which there are, are many. There's a lot. There's a long history of personal uh, rancor and, behind all this as well. And you do a great job of describing that history since the climate bill failed uh, in Congress in 2010, and when environmental groups on the state and national level had to sort of pick their heads up and re-strategize. And this is why I think the story is really important, because it's indicative of how different types of groups have strategized since then. And so this other coalition, the Alliance for Jobs and Clean Energy, which is a very diverse coalition of environmental groups, of labor groups, environmental justice groups, the reason why they were so upset um, with Yoram's proposal is not necessarily because they were fully opposed to a carbon tax. It was because they had been working together for such a long time to get everyone on the same page. And then in comes this other group with a completely different set of um, ideas. And, and there's there's like a little bit of territorial. There are some territorial issues here. And also they just they um, they don't feel like many of the groups who were represented in this coalition we're represented in this carbon tax idea. So can you tease that out a bit for me? Because there is a long history of people feeling slighted and people building coalitions and so forth. Sure, sure, sure. So the environmental groups in Washington and many nationally, um, when they saw the the sort of uh, debacle of 2009, 2010, you know, the failure of the cap and trade bill at the national level. And while that was happening, a cap and trade bill was also failing uh, in Washington state, um, sort of stepped back and reassessed, and their conclusion was the environmental movement alone is not powerful enough. It's just not powerful enough to create change at the scale necessary to address this problem. So the only way to succeed, they thought, was to bring in other uh, constituencies, other progressive constituencies. So they started years ago reaching out to labor groups, community of color groups, social justice groups, business groups, all sorts of groups, trying to pull together this coalition and sitting around a table trying to figure out what sort of carbon policy could please or satisfy all of these disparate groups. And, uh, and that's a complicated, <laughs> that turns out to be a very complicated and difficult process. And, uh, you know, sort of in the meantime, Lots of carbon hawks, including Yaron Bauman, were getting impatient, and they sort of viewed this uh, this coalition of establishment groups as kind of top heavy and cautious, and uh, you know, unwilling to sort of take any chances. So they they their reasoning was um, there's enough people who care about climate change across the political spectrum. If we can just target climate change and not get into these other debates about how to spend money, whether to spend money, the size of government, et cetera, et cetera. If we can just target climate change, we can bring in people who care about climate from the right and the left and win that way. And we need to do it now. So they, um, this coalition process was slow and painstaking. And so from the alliance's point of view, they had been working on this for years, by all accounts, in an emotionally draining and difficult process that was starting to pay dividends. And then sort of these outsiders stomp in and threaten to kind of screw the whole thing up by, by and, and, this is, and this is key, it's key to remember that one of the central alliance arguments here is that the carbon tax is going to lose. <laughs> that's, that's 
one of the premises of their opposition is you're going to flail with this, you're going to lose badly, and then you're going to sort of tarnish climate action in the future. You're going to you're going to botch this carefully laid plan we've been working on. I completely get the fact that we need to broaden the coalition, and you've sort of written eloquently on this since. 2010, when, you know, I think you wrote a piece in Grist about how environmentalism isn't actually the right movement for climate regulation and legislation to come out of. But when you look at the actual policy here and get out of the weeds of the left circular firing squad, um, the policy here is that 80% of all the money that's raised at $25 a ton goes back to working families. And that is precisely what the social justice movement has been working on for two decades in Washington state because of their aggressive nature of their, um, you know, tax regime writ large. Right. And this, and this, I mean, this really solves that problem eloquently. I mean, it's, it's or elegantly, it's really more that Yoram is just not a great spokesperson and not a great bridge builder. And in fact is a great bridge burner, <laughs> but, but, but otherwise yeah, uh, like, the policy is well, um, that is the subject of considerable dispute. So the central, the central argument here in policy terms is what's good, what's good for these impacted communities? What's good for these low-income communities? And so uh, Bauman and crew, the Carbon Washington crew, say we're going to make the tax code more progressive. We're going to reduce the sales tax, which is highly regressive with some of our carbon revenue, and the net effect will be to make the tax code more progressive. Some people in the alliance dispute that that's even true, but I, every every uh, analysis I've seen more or less confirms that the net effect on the tax code will be progressive. But the but but what the alliance is saying is we, you know, a few pennies off our sales tax is not going to help these communities weather climate change, survive climate change. It's not going to help them be able to avoid the tax. One of their arguments is, look, if you put, if you raise gasoline prices on wealthy people, yeah, they can buy a Leaf. They can buy a Tesla. They can move to, uh, you know, an expensive walkable community. There's a number of ways they can just avoid the tax and then they won't be paying it. But if you're if you're a low-income community, you have poor transit infrastructure, you can't afford an electric car, there's no charging stations in your community, and you're stuck out on the periphery of your city, forced to drive into the city to your job, you have no capacity to avoid the tax. So you're going to end up basically low-income communities are going to get stuck paying this. So right, what they this need is... a Milton is... Friedman argument, right? I mean, Milton Friedman and many others now in the World Bank community are basically saying, instead of having prescriptive solutions, we should just give people money, which is what Yoram's doing. He's saying, you know, they've been fighting for a 10% matching EITC, earned income tax credit, in Washington State for years, and he's giving them a 25% bump in the earned income tax credit. So he's giving every working family 1500 bucks, and he's saying, just give these people money and stop the nanny state stuff. Well, yes, he is saying that and referring to public investment as nanny state. You know, this whole attempt to characterize public investment as sort of meddlesome, ineffective, incompetent government, you know, meddling offends uh, liberal sensibilities, and quite frankly, I think ought to. I think there's been a multi-decade uh, propaganda war waged against government by the right, and it's amazing to me to this day how much of that the left has internalized. I just don't think there's any practical solution to climate change that's not going to involve substantial public investment. I mean, even if... No, these, no, but David, I'm not, the, I'm not arguing... No, no, wait, let me, let me finish. Let me finish. Even if these communities, even if these families have more um, dollars in their pocket, that's not going to that's not going to be enough for them to, to buy an electric car. It's not going to be enough for them to build transit. They need public uh, investment in their communities. They don't think that's... They don't see that as demanding handouts. They see that no, no, as... Yeah, go ahead. I'm not arguing that point. I'm saying that this is a $25 a ton CO2 tax, of which 80% of it goes back to working families. The the $25 per ton CO2 tax is supposed to go up to $100 a ton over time. So there is a lot more money coming in the future. And the way infrastructure is spent is over time. 
And so in fact, once this passes, the delta between the $25 and the $100 that's going to come in over the next 30 years could be pre-spent for exactly the infrastructure you're talking about. I mean, Governor Inslee doesn't have to solve all of Washington state's problems on the back of this carbon tax. He can also save it with other smart policies that he can put into place. Doesn't that assume that we get there? Because we don't you need a legislative approval to get up to, to ratchet up? No, no. I, it's, it's several, several points to make here. Several points to make here. One is it rises automatically. So, yes, it will, uh, if left unmolested, go up to $100. All of that will be refunded to these tax um, uh, reductions. So there will be no money for infrastructure unless it comes from elsewhere. Two, after two years, um, assuming it passes, after two years, then the legislature can have their way with it. And this is another point the alliance groups make. If you pass this policy that all politicians in the state hate, two years from now, they can easily go in and either uh, alter the level of the tax or they can alter where the revenue goes. So so I think claims, you know, claims made uh, for the taxes, uh, for this policy's benefits, need to at least be at least be caveated. At least there's an asterisk, assuming the Washington legislature does not come in and screw it up, which is entirely, entirely possible. So, Dave, I, I'm hearing from folks up there that it's probably not going to pass. Which uh, I I think it's it's sad that something won't pass. That we can't pull something together that everybody can kind of get behind that does incentivize the right thing and does create, you know, my, my hope, my dream would be for a state to do a really strong carbon tax and prove it out just the way Reggie did for the clean power plan to prove out emissions trading and, and really then be able to parlay that into a national strategy. I I would love to see Washington succeed. Do you see any way for that to happen? Well, at this point, the latest polling shows yeses edging a little bit above nos, although uh, the, 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 the body of undecideds remains very large. And, and political, experienced political people in Washington will tell you undecideds tend to break no on, on ballot initiatives just because that's just instinctively. They've done that on every ballot measure uh, for years. So I think the smart betting money is still on the initiative losing. Although really anything could happen. Nobody expected these guys to get as far as they've gotten. So, you know, miracles are possible, but but, uh, in the absence of a big infusion of money, which they would need to contact uh, a lot more voters and explain to them and persuade some of these undecideds, it's probably going to lose. I would have said I would have said 80 90% going to lose uh you know even a few months ago now I think like 60 70 <laughs> going to lose. Yeah, but, they're definitely pouring a bunch of money into phone banking and stuff this week. I mean the the wrinkle to this is that Washington state doesn't have polling places. Washington state mails ballots right, to everybody right. and that's all coming this week and so and 15 to 20% of all the ballots are returned within 72 hours of when they're mailed out. So like if, if they're going to educate people, they got to educate them this week. The worst part about this is the Democratic Party came out against this. So it's not going to be in any progressive like sort of voter guides, even though right. almost all of the progressive newspapers have now backed and endorsed the um, the the initiative. Yeah. So I want to I want to broaden this conversation to sort of the national discussion around pricing carbon. What is your how do you feel about this sort of civil war within the environmental left on um, whether to develop cap and trade, how to bring different stakeholders into the conversation, whether we should reach out to the right and talk about a straight up carbon tax? Um, Because, I mean, it's not just Washington state where we're seeing this political infighting. So help me understand this fight in Washington in the context of how this is playing out around the country. Sure. I mean, well, I think the central thing here, the central, and this too often I think goes unspoken, the central difficulty here is how to work around Republican intransigence. That's the that's the sort of lump in the middle of all this that everybody's trying to figure out. Republicans just won't budge on this. They deny it exists. They 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 fight any action. So how do you deal with that? Um, the, the the carbon wa the carbon Washington people think well you can persuade enough of them 
if you have a policy that's ideologically, uh, if not sort of amenable to the right, at least not offensive to the right. And that turns out in practice in Washington not to be working out. The right won't budge on that either. So the alliance's strategy is let's unite the left and overwhelm Republican exist, uh, resistance, which, of course, has worked a little bit in California, but of, is not going to work at the national level. There just aren't enough Democrats at the national level to do that. So this is sort of a, the, the nasty possibility that I raise at the end of my piece is that neither of these strategies will work, and there's just no way to do anything until the Republican Party becomes less insane on this issue, which is the, an extremely unpleasant conclusion. Yeah, I mean, we've. I mean, you've written eloquently on that, and I I tend to agree with you on that. But I do think that there are some cracks in that argument at the state level. I mean, there does seem to be a little bit more um, of a willingness to have these conversations, mainly because I mean, the wind industry alone is paying nine hundred million dollars a year in lease payments to farmers every year, and same thing true with you know folks who are renting land under solar farms. And so there's a lot of money going into red districts from the renewable energy industry, which is leading to a lot more bipartisan solutions on climate change solution deployment, um, which yeah, well, this actually, can be that actually brings up a, a great point, which is relevant to this Washington thing, too. The problem is, politically, if you just are an academic and you're looking at the right's purported ideology, they ought to not object to a fully refunded uh, net revenue neutral carbon tax. But it turns out, in practice, um, voters hate taxes. <laughs> First of all, all voters hate taxes, including and especially Republicans. And even when you poll people, even Republican voters would prefer a system that invests the revenue from that tax in clean energy. That just makes intuitive sense to voters. Why tax this dirty energy and then just give us the money back? It just doesn't make sense to your sort of average voter, whereas take money from dirty energy and give it to clean energy because we want to clean up energy makes sense uh, uh, across the ideological spectrum from a voter's perspective. So, so I think there is lots of opportunity in states, but I think the key here is you lead with the clean energy. You don't lead with the tax. And the problem with a revenue neutral tax, at least in terms of ballot language, is that's going to be about taxes. The very first line of the ballot language is I-732 is about taxes. So right there, you just lose a huge swath of voters. Whereas if you invest the revenue, what you can say is we're putting forward a ballot measure that will invest in wind and solar energy for Washington state. Oh, and P.S., we're paying for it with a tax. That makes a big difference. When you lead with clean energy, you get much better numbers. And this is so this is a problem between sort of Republican ideology in the abstract and the actual preferences of Republican voters in practice. I'm still trying to figure out how to feel about this issue. You do a fantastic <laughs> job too. of covering both sides and, and covering the history so you can understand where both sides are coming from. But if you didn't know all that history, one could look at this and say, why the hell are you fighting against each other? This is on the ballot now. Why don't you just put all your resources behind it? You actually have a chance to win. So do you get infuriated when you think about it? Or have you do you understand the nuance so much that you can kind of see both sides? Yeah, or... you know, when I went into it, when I went into it, that was roughly my attitude, which is whatever your policy objections to this it's on the ballot, <laughs> you know, so it's a yes or no at this point, and I can't imagine saying no. After talking uh, quite a bit with a lot of people on the alliance side, I'm, I've, I've softened a little bit on that. I, I think there, um, I think the wonk community is, is, and the climate community, generally speaking, is dominated by um, uh, mostly white people, and, and more than that, mostly sort of affluent, well-educated people. So I think there's a tendency, and I've noticed this in the reaction to my piece, there's a tendency to sort of wave away these social justice considerations, sort of wave away um, this, this notion that these communities desperately need money as kind of just sort of grubby politicking and looking for handouts, and, and it's, it's silly, and it's no reason to oppose this great carbon policy because carbon's the thing that really matters. 
But, you know, to these communities, um, they have very pressing and urgent problems that are just getting worse and worse, the worse climate change gets. So it's not a side, it's not a side issue for them. It's a very central issue, and, and they want to be represented in policy development. They want a say in policy development. They want to say in how their communities are treated. So I've, I, I would say I've softened quite a bit. Ultimately, my, my political instincts are hardly anything good ever happens, <laughs> you know, and, and when there's a chance for anything better than nothing to happen, you should just take it. Opportunism, I think, uh, over the years, opportunism has become my sort of guiding political philosophy. So I like if you held me at gunpoint and forced me to choose, I'm probably going to vote for the thing because I think uh, Jigger is right that um, the alliance's plan to run a ballot measure in 2018 is at the very least uh, fraught. It's it's far, far, far from a sure bet. And so I'm sort of like a bird in the hand guy. But at the same time, I think it's worthwhile for everybody in the climate community to, 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 to step back a little bit and think about what it sounds like to these communities when they get lectured about how tons of carbon are the only metric that matters and their concerns about infrastructure and their ability to weather uh, climate change and their ability to have the sort of resilience in the face of climate change are sort of waved away as as trivial side concerns. I really think uh, it's worth everybody's time to take that a little bit more seriously. Yeah, so Dave, um, it, uh, say it were to pass, would there be some way to then set up a process, a legislative process that would take care of some of those issues about investing in infrastructure and making sure that that you deal with some of the adaptation issues and some of the social justice issues? Could you make it so that, look, if we can just get this thing through, we'll fix it? Is that is that a possibility? Well, in theory, it is in theory a possibility, but the Washington legislature is a dumpster fire, and the Washington legislature has shown no uh, no ability or willingness to divert revenue to these uh, to these communities or to to do anything on their behalf or to raise revenue in any way. So theoretically, it's all fixable. Theoretically, the legislature could go back in two years and 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 craft it into exactly what the alliance wants or what we want or what anybody wants in practice i think that's highly unlikely i think in practice if the legislature were to do anything to it it would probably be something stupid like bc did which is cap the tax or or um you know uh, re remove the working families tax credit part or or something i think the chances of the legislature screwing it up even worse are far greater than the chances of the legislature producing the kind of legislation we'd like to see. Well, David, I would, uh, you know, given that I think this may end up becoming a wave election, given Donald Trump's performance recently, um, <laughs> I, I choose to believe that that I should still be optimistic and that we'll get to fifty percent plus one vote. Well, it's uh, it, it's definitely. A, I mean, uh, if there's one thing Donald Trump has done, it has made uh, once remote possibilities <laughs> much more much more possible than they used to be. So who the hell knows what will happen? <laughs> That's the truth. David Roberts is a staff writer at Vox, where he writes on uh, climate, energy, politics in general. Now uh, you can follow him on Twitter or at Vox. So David, thanks very much for your time. We appreciate you coming on and uh, keep up the good writing. Thanks a lot, y'all. Well, we've got another salacious story on tap, the hacked emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, John Podesta. If Donald Trump were not violently shaking up this presidential race, the Russian hacking of Clinton's emails, I should say the alleged Russian hacking, but the U.S. government did say it was the Russians, the Russian hacking of Clinton's emails and the role of WikiLeaks in distributing them would be an explosive story. It's espionage, it's a bit of embarrassment, it's political interference, it is truly disturbing and also enlightening for those of us interested in how a candidate like Clinton is making her political calculus behind the scenes. There's a lot to chew on in these emails and plenty related to energy and climate policy. A word of disclosure here, John Podesta, Clinton's campaign chairman and uh, former chief of staff for President Clinton, 
was the president of the Center for American Progress when I was there in 2011 writing for Climate Progress. So I sat in on a couple meetings with him on energy policy, and I heard him debate some of the issues. I didn't really interact with him, though, aside from a couple formal interviews for coverage. Um, just wanted to, to say that. Last Friday, WikiLeaks started releasing emails from Podesta about Clinton's campaign. In one exchange, Podesta lamented that climate activist billionaire Tom Steyer was effing, he used the full word, uh, I will not use it here, he was effing the Clinton campaign because of a litmus test that would determine whether they got his financial support. In another exchange, Clinton said environmental activists pressuring her to support full divestment from fossil fuels should, quote, get a life. And uh, we'll put these into context. I'm curious about your thoughts, though, Jigger. On, on whole, what do you think the emails say about Clinton's style and approach to the issues? Well, I, you know, the thing about sausage making and governing is that, is that you really do need to recognize that the country is very diverse. And by definition, these environmental activists are on the fringe. That is their purpose, is to move the debate to you know their side of the argument so that there's a safer space to cut a deal. When I was on the board of Greenpeace, I mean, we took over Mount Rushmore, right? We took over Mount Rushmore because President Obama was screwing up climate um, negotiations. And it was extraordinary how quickly he pivoted and was more aggressive on climate negotiations after that story broke, right? So, you know, people do crazy things and that is their job is to be is to make candidates like Clinton more uncomfortable and to push them in places they don't want to go to. So it's I don't clear think from that... these emails around um, the environmental activists and so forth that she pursues these issues like everything else. She's very um, calculated. She's weighing all the options. Um, some might say way too calculated. Some might say scheming. You know, she has this personification and, you know, she's certainly thinking through everything and is influenced by how constituents are pressuring her on issues. But it was quite fascinating to see the sausage making here. And uh, clearly she's taking these environmental activists, despite what she says about them behind the scenes, into consideration in her policymaking. Yeah, she's very pragmatic. So I asked the one person I knew closest, you know, the person that was most accessible to me who had run political campaigns and was a lifetime environmentalist who had worked for the Sierra Club. And that was my husband. And I said, what did you think about this? And he said, this gives you a window into what a campaign is. There are people who are devil's advocates. There are people, there are a lot of ideas thrown out there. A lot of them are really bad. You take good ones, you take bad, you know, you look at the bad ones. What, what we really need to look at is like, what happened at the end? The platform, the proposals that she puts forward, the fact that she is the only person, like, and that's including the moderators, who has ever mentioned climate change in any of the presidential debates, says something for her. I think that's right. The other thing is that when you look at the, the politics of polling, um, the Clintons, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, are the only ones that have gotten the Democrats even close to winning the South. I think the Republicans um, basically won the South by plus one um, during both of the Clinton um, uh, Clinton elections, the Bill Clinton elections. And right now, Hillary is polling at around plus two. Um, you put that in perspective, Bush won the South by plus 13. Um, you know, George W. Bush won by plus 15. Ronald Reagan won by plus 14. So when you think about what the Clintons have done, the Clintons have figured out how not to be a New York Democrat running for office. Some people uh, look at the demands of the environmental left, you know, people who like really believe that climate change is an issue that we should we should focus on, that they believe in clean energy, but they may get turned off by the environmental left. I think what I learned from these emails and, you know, we all kind of knew this anyway, is that they they provide an important piece at the at one end of the spectrum in order to push the debate forward. And so very clearly, Clinton was responding to them. She and Podesta were responding to uh, Martin O'Malley, who at, at that point, who was in the race and who called for 100% renewable energy. And they debated in these emails how uh, whether they should follow that, uh, how realistic it was. They're clearly talking about the issues. And then there was Tom Steyer, who we've discussed on this podcast a couple times. He's a uh, 
former hedge fund billionaire who's throwing a lot of money into uh, climate politics, into PACs to support candidates who are climate hawks. And, uh, you know, Podesta was really angry at Steyer's litmus test that they needed to support, I think, 50% renewable energy by 2030, something like that. Very aggressive emissions reductions and renewable energy targets, which the Clinton campaign at that point was not prepared to support. And I don't know if they've gotten behind those targets yet, but they're all debating how they should come out publicly on these issues or these proposals, which some might call fringe or too aggressive, but clearly Clinton's campaign, her the way she publicly talks about these issues is different because of how these other organizations were pressuring her campaign. So this is definitely sausage making. Yeah. And this is exactly what you would hope would happen was that there would be these internal conversations that Remember, there's a presumption of personal privacy that was just completely obliterated by WikiLeaks um, in what I think is an unethical way and that was clearly bent on influencing the outcome of the election in some way. But the outcome is that they really did talk about it and they really have come up with with programs that we think are going to be really helpful to clean energy. And now it sort of remains to be seen if she's elected, you know, who would she appoint to those key positions like Secretary of State and EPA Administrator, Department of Energy, Labor, Commerce, all the people who are going to impact our industry and climate change. That remains to be seen. But so far, she seems to be on a really positive path. Yeah. And the other thing that that I talk about a lot on this podcast and other places is that I really do admire really good politicians. Like, it's amazing to me, Bernie Sanders is a horrible politician. I mean, to be clear, the guy has been in the House and the Senate for God knows how long and hasn't passed a single thing, right? I mean, and so to suggest that he's a good politician is crazy and laughable. So all these people go and say, oh, I love Bernie because he makes up crap and never pays for anything and doesn't really have a strong semblance of how to create a constituency or a um, you know coalition of folks to vote on something. But the millennials love him. Okay, but I mean, Hillary Clinton for 30 years has been figuring out how to be a good politician. And that and I still at the same time believe strongly in Bill McKibben and what Greenpeace is doing and what Sierra Club is doing and others to actually force the argument over to their side of the ledger. That is what they're supposed to do. And it's what the NRA does on their issues and the Club for Growth does on their issues. That is what advocacy groups do. And so I can keep both of those ideas in my head at the same time, even though they have dissonance between them. Well, if there's one thing this election has taught us, it's that it's not necessarily about record. It's about identity politics. One final thing I'll say is that in private conversations that uh, I've been privy to among environmentalists, they still really dislike Clinton. I mean, there is a lot of there's a lot of disdain for Clinton because she does support natural gas because she wavered on Keystone XL really wants to build out natural gas infrastructure still believes and Podesta still believes that natural gas can be a bridge fuel. And that's untenable for many on the environmental left who I think still will vote for Clinton, but really do not see her changes publicly during this campaign season as anything to be lauded. They really well, dislike her a lot. Well, actually, uh, this is where I'm differing with Jigger on uh, Bernie Sanders, because I think he's going to serve an incredibly important purpose in the Senate by really keeping these issues front and center. And he will continue. He does work across the aisle and he does know how to get things done. And he's done really well for himself politically. And just remember how far he got with the election in the primaries, I think that he will keep her honest on these things and he will be sort of the ideological bellwether. So I think we're actually going to get a lot done in her administration. So who would you say is better on that front, Sheldon Whitehouse or Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, I just think that like when you think about the great, late, great Ted Kennedy, he was a lion in the Senate, but still cut deals that actually made sense for education or other things. I don't think Bernie Sanders can cut a deal to save his life. Yes, it is important for someone to be able to rail against something on the Senate floor. It's interesting. He tweets, which is great. But like, you know, can you name me like 10 Republicans that would get into a room and co-sponsor something that Bernie Sanders has actually written? Never. Well, I think it'll be totally depend on the issue. But you're right. I think there are there's going to need to be a coalition. There's going to be need to be pushing from all angles, but I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think it's important to still have his voice there as a leader in the Senate, uh, uh, along with Sheldon Whitehouse and others. 
Let's move on. In 1989, the world took unprecedented action to cut chlorofluorocarbons, uh, these organic compounds used for refrigerants and aerosols. They were, as we know, creating a hole in the ozone layer, and the countries of the world came together in Montreal that year to phase them out. The Montreal Protocol, as it's called, is often used as historical evidence that a wide range of countries can indeed find a way to address a collective environmental problem. And uh, that set the stage for international climate negotiations, which culminated in the Paris Agreement last December. But there was a problem with the Montreal Protocol. It actually created another problem, the use of hydrofluorocarbons uh, in the place of CFCs. It turns out that HFCs are a thousand times more effective at trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide, and the world has ramped up use of the compound in the last couple of decades and uh, will continue to ramp up as more and more people in developing countries get AC. So nations came together once again, this time in Kigali, Rwanda, to phase out HFCs. And after seven years of negotiations, they finally came to an agreement. Make no mistake, this is a big deal for the climate. Catherine, you've talked to people who have been familiar with the process. How important is it that we got this agreement? Yeah, this is huge. I, I had the opportunity to talk to Zer Derwood Zalke, who is with the Institute of Governance and Sustainable Development. And I also connected with David Doniger from NRDC. And these folks have been working on this for decades. Um, and what Derwood said is the the great thing is that the Mon Montreal Protocol is a rock and roll agreement. <laughs> he said this had um, 197 countries, 100% ratification, 100% compliance, and this treaty has always done a good job. And part of this is because it's a real GOP favorite. It sends market signals. So it was actually codified as an explicit climate treaty under Bush II in 2007. So it has very, very strong approval. There are no opponents to this to this um, provision, this HFC agreement. So this is huge because HFCs are cause 10,000 more um, heat trapping than CO2. 8% of our warming is from CFCs. Um, if, if, if this goes into effect, it'll be a 1% Fahrenheit and a half degree centigrade reduction by 2100. Um, it's, it's equivalent to about 80 billion tons of CO2 over 35 years. So this is a huge deal. Yeah. In the beginning, I, I, of this segment, I couched it as a win for the global community. And it's pretty clear that this is a win for the Obama administration, which saw an HFC treaty as important as an important pillar of its broad climate strategy. And in 2013, President Obama sat down with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, and they talked about how to get a global climate agreement in place and an HFC agreement. And that um, built off of years of work on this front and I think the Obama administration deserves some credit here, too, because they made this a pretty big priority. And, um, you know, developing developed countries set some pretty strong targets and brought a lot of the other major potential emitters like China and India on board. So this is a, this is a pretty good diplomatic win, win all around. Yeah. And they really did not know that it would get done until 6 a.m. on Saturday. They, they just did not know with the election process that it would happen. One of That's the good things, things that, usually go right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it was government and NGOs, so civil society, were all involved in the negotiations. Now, one thing that really worked in their favor is that industry, the air conditioning industry, has has been working on this and have known about it for the last seven years. And especially in the last three, year, three years, the, the negotiations had gotten quite intense and quite specific. So they've been working on substitutes for a long time. So now there are substitutes um, that are readily available and that will reduce the cost of being able to shift off of CFCs. Jigar, how significant is this that India agreed to this, that China agreed to this? Um, you know, these are folks that have historically been very concerned about updating the Montreal Protocol. So for me, I think this is a huge win. And I think that I don't want to take anything away from John Kerry and President Obama, but the Montreal Protocol has always been the easier one to do because it's a specific industry and there's only like eight people who manufacture this stuff globally and you just pay everybody off and they get to the finish line. So I don't think that like this is the harder part. I think the harder part was, you know, the aviation's deal that they made 13 days ago. And so, you know, they, the, the airlines, which, you know, this has been opposed by United Airlines and specifically for a long time came together and agreed to cut aviation emissions 
Um, and I think the Paris deal, you know, getting finally ratified and having enough countries that came on board is also part of it. So the Montreal Protocol stuff is great, but I think it's something that was in the can and would have gotten done with the right amount of money. Remember, the, the U.S. government's already phasing out HFCs, so we're doing it in the United States already um, using the, the new technologies that are available. Was it in the can, though? I mean... It's never in the can until it's in the can because people like to drama the deal. It's never done until it's done. The Chinese and Indians want to get more for it. They fake that they're going to not do it. But ultimately, it's one sector. It's a lot easier to deal with one sector than economy-wide emissions. And also, once uh, an industry starts starts shifting its investment plan, which it started several years ago because they knew this would, was coming, it makes it a lot easier to transition. I would say this is one of the six major greenhouse gases. So this this is significant that they're going to do this, whether or not it was easier to implement than others. It's a it's an enormous deal. I, I do not want to take anything away from anyone. I'm just saying that, like, to me, it's the totality of the work. And remember, I mean, linking to the previous segment, this whole thing was started by Podesta, to be clear, right? I mean, Obama was not doing its best work in the first uh, term. It wasn't until Podesta came into the White House in 2013 that they actually started up the conversations with China, did a lot more work in this area, the Clean Power Plan, all these other pieces, and really ramping everything up. So I think Podesta deserves a tremendous amount of credit for getting this White House to put climate on Obama's legacy. Remember, the other change was John Kerry as Secretary of State, and he's a true believer also. Yep. Oh, he's extraordinary. He's extraordinary, and this is literally his his best use. Like, he is like, and he's been working for this job for 40 years. Let's tell our listeners something they may not know. Catherine, what's your story this week? Um, so we've been talking about Florida for a while and their ballot initiatives. In the Miami Herald recently, just this week, um, there was someone caught on tape, which was um, the James Madison Institute, Sal Nuzzo, who is one of those folks working on the utility side to try to get that ballot one passed, uh, ballot initiative number one passed um, in Florida that would essentially try to stop solar um, from having any cost shifting. And it, it is worth listening to because it shows exactly what their thought process is, the utility thought process is, and what solar means to them and what cost shift is. They're talking about wealthy consumers are the only ones that have solar. Um, it is pretty stark the way the way he talks. So there may be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that this initiative doesn't pass and that people understand where it's coming from, but you get a real insider view of uh, the way these folks are thinking. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. I wrote a piece riffing off of the tape yesterday. It was released on Tuesday night, and I got a statement from the president of the James Madison Institute who said that if we had to say it all over, we'd say it same way. So they really have nothing to hide here, but it was a telling moment. Um, it, they do claim that they have not been working directly with the utilities, but what Mr. Nuzzo did here was lay out exactly how the free market think tanks and the utilities worked on this PR campaign to get people confused about the Amendment 1, which would basically uh, put in place very broad language that could be interpreted any way to avoid cost shifting and to avoid ratepayers from paying for for solar systems on the grid. And, uh, you know, they, they couched it in pro-solar terms and said, solar is a winning political issue in this state, and we need to frame it as a pro-solar issue if we're going to win this uh, ballot amendment. So what a fascinating um, reveal into this campaign. Jigger, what's your story? So um, Robin Chase is uh, the founder of Zipcar, and uh, she had a really good um, set of, you know, quotes that, that came onto Twitter from one of her talks last week. And one of the things she talked about was really just that how public transit, which we kind of talked about with Dave Roberts, really is going to come in the form of automated vehicles um, where we move away from buses and towards, um, you know, using our roadways to create sort of public transit using smaller vehicles so they can be more frequent. Um, and the other thing she talked about was, you know, in terms of providing good policy around automated automated vehicles, we should mandate that they're um, for shared uh, shared rides, and they should be forced to be electric. Which I thought was really interesting because it was the first time someone had really put, I think, really specific uh, 
um, policy positions forward on how local uh, government should regulate automated vehicles. Well, I've just got a little announcement to make since we officially made it public earlier this week. Um, we've got a little changing of the guard at GTM. So I have taken the helm at GTM as editor-in-chief and my colleague Julia Piper, who has been just a fantastic reporter and has been on this show a couple times. She is now a senior editor and she's helping out with a lot of the long-term editorial vision and day-to-day -day management of our coverage. And uh, so I'm pleased to be working with her on that front. And Eric Wessoff, who has been our editor-in-chief since 2011, is now going to be our editor-at-large, still playing a role in the voice of our coverage, um, still you know, playing a, an important consultative role and continuing to write for the site. And I just want to give a shout-out to Eric because he gave GTM, I think, the voice that it, it's known for. And we've evolved considerably over the years, but he's always had this really edgy, sarcastic, very educated voice that people really love and I love. And it's what drew me to, to Green Tech Media. So Eric's not like going away or anything, but there's definitely a changing of responsibilities. And I just think that Eric should uh, get credit for, you know, really making GTM the voice it is today. And we look forward to keep building that and we're going to keep growing this team, too. Congratulations. Well, Steve, yeah, Stephen, congratulations. I hope you don't get too important for the energy gang. This podcast is the highlight of my week and it will never go away. Aw, we love you too. <laughs> That's going to do it for us, folks. We're on every platform where podcasts are found. Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, iTunes, NPR One, Overcast, and we've got an email address. You can contact us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We're getting more email these days, which I like because uh, we're integrating what you want to hear about in this show. So we do listen to you, even if we don't get back to you right away. We do listen to what you have to say. We really enjoy hearing from our listeners. We've got a um, live interchange podcast coming up next week at our Solar Market Insight conference. So any of you who are going to be there in San Diego, look forward to seeing you. And uh, that's, uh, I guess that's it. Catherine, have a wonderful end of your week and weekend. Thanks so much. You too. Jigger, you do the same. I will. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Mm -hmm.